Great. And then Okay. And can can you see who has joined as guests? Yes. Chelsea? Okay. Do you see Kurt? Um, no. No. Hmm. I see several city council. I see Mayor Sweets here. Welcome everyone. Well, good morning and good afternoon at the same time, everyone, which is fun for me to say. Um, and welcome to the first ever Crisis Clinic Symposium here in Washington State. So I am very excited to be able to introduce you to my colleagues from crisis centers around the nation. We have Florida, we have Arizona, and we have Georgia, which is why I said good morning slash good afternoon. So um, it's so wonderful to see so many uh, familiar faces at some capacity we've all worked together uh, before. Um, so my name, just as a quick review, my name is Anura Shah, and I, along with the local Aetna team of experts, will be serving as your moderators for today's interactive symposium. So I'm the CEO of um, a company called Beyond Force that I started in 2015. It's a consultation, training, and education firm, and we specialize in workplace violence prevention, crisis intervention and de-escalation, and workforce development specific to a field called forensic mental health. And forensic mental health can be best described as the intersection of criminal justice and behavioral health. So that's where my expertise is. Um, and again, it's wonderful to see so many familiar faces and names. At some point, I think um, I, my firm either served as your municipal consultant or as your program consultant, um, or you had to sit through eight hours of my CIT courses. I'm also a CIT master instructor um, uh, nationwide. Uh, so, um, or you actually probably sat through one of my classes at Shoreline Community College with my professional development series that I created um, for co-responders. So um, for that, I am sorry, <laughs> um, but, but I'm going to make it up to you today because you'll be very happy to know that I only have two slides. I only have two slides. It's some sort of record um, because today is actually not about me. Today is all about our um, esteemed, my esteemed colleagues from around the nation, our featured speakers. Um, today, you will find out what it takes to develop, to implement, to run, and to expand crisis centers across cities and counties. That's a level of experts we have today. Um, and so you, all of you know this, everyone on, on this call knows this already by now, crisis work in general is professionally challenging on a daily basis. Um, it's even more complicated by laws and by health policies. But I really do hope what you take away today is that yes, it can be messy, but it's necessary. And that there are experts here today, um, many of whom have been doing this work for literally decades, like 50 years, um, as you'll hear, that are ready to help move, it, move our conversation forward. So um, based off of some of our discussions that so many of us here have had over the years together, our teams have developed a few questions for our experts that we will be asking at the conclusion of each presentation. Um, and then we will open it up to full audience Q&A uh, right after we hear from our Georgia Peach. 
So throughout our expert panelist presentations today, be sure to jot down any questions that you have so we can get to them during the Q&A. So that'll be an open Q&A. Um, you can use the raise hand feature if you know how to do that. Um, if that's easiest for you, you could do the raise hand feature and we'll get to you. Um, but we will open it up. And so you're free to ask your question live as well if you're more comfortable with that. Um, so we have a Q&A box. You can use the raise hand feature or you can just be old fashioned like me and, and um, speak your question, whatever you prefer. Um, and I want to remind everyone, as you know, that this is a recorded event um, and this will be maintained by the city of Kirkland. So, um, and the whole point of that was that so you can access this so you can see all of the materials whenever you need to see them. Hopefully you received the booklet this morning with additional information um, and we sent that along as a guide. So please save that to your list of references. So um, Chelsea, why don't we go ahead and start with the first slide on my presentation. I'm gonna get, again, my, my first of two. Okay, three, I have a title slide. All right, all right, you caught me. Okay, so this is my first of two. So um, crisis intervention and co-responder teams have headlined some of the advancements in our street level work when responding to behavioral health um, crises lately, right? We've all heard about these teams. Some of us have worked those teams for many, many years. Um, but even with models, wonderful models, which I am 100% dedicated to um, in place, first responders here in our state are really still only left with those two options. And we all know those two options, the emergency department or jail. Um, at the end of the day, especially during swing shift, during graveyards, weekends, holidays, off tours, um, you know, oftentimes people still end up in the emergency department or jail um, because we do not have a physical place yet for people to go who don't quite meet ITA criteria, right, involuntary treatment criteria, but need more than just that independent health in the moment, that in-between population that is just so challenging that, um, as you know, uh, uh, really comes up pretty frequently in all of our data. So today I encourage everyone to take the time to understand what a crisis center is also not intended to be, but, um, but also what it has the potential to be. Um, so as you can see, articulating goals for the center very early on is not only important for just the daily operations of a center, but for, to ensure that expectations are clear among all stakeholders. Otherwise, it could end up being what it was never intended to be. Um, and I think you'll hear about some of that, about the stakeholder education and the buy-in early on from our presenters today. Um, crisis centers' main functions are not primary care clinics. That's what primary care clinics do. They're not emergency departments, and they're not even really like the IORAs or the urgent care centers. All of those facilities have their place, right? They have their place in society and they, they're good at what they do. Um, but you know, even a physical injury, so somebody bleeding or somebody has hit their head on the curb in the context of a behavioral health crisis really would need that medical attention first, right? We, that's the medical attention first and then hopefully a warm handoff to, to somewhere like a crisis center. But the, the crisis centers are in general not equipped to see that kind of you know, intracranial bleed, um, you know, that needs to be taken care of on the emergency level. So it is not an emergency department or urgent care. It's, it's unique and different from that. Um, it's also, um, you know, not really considered to be a, a day shelter or an evening shelter. Um, we have shelters for that. And there are, um, you know, several different types of models of service delivery. So it's not like that, um, that can't be a subdivision of some sort of program within the crisis center, which you'll hear about today. But as a main, main mission, it's not also a shelter for the unhoused. Um, but again, developing those community partnerships and perhaps having a sub-program 
um, or a branch of the program, as you'll hear, um, is, is obviously um, could be one of the goals based on the community's need. So crisis clinics can provide the community with an option beyond the traditional measures. Um, next slide, please. They are cost-effective alternatives that improve community safety, prioritize behavioral health needs, and they link people to the appropriate supportive services, potentially reducing their criminal legal involvement, or at the very least provide a lesser restrictive alternative when it's safe and lawful to do so. So um, I've, I've mentioned this before several times, but it's, I think it's worth talking about again, just really quickly. Um, and it's the best practice elements from, um, the, from SAMHSA. SAMHSA is a big funder of some of these programs as well. So keep them in mind um, when, when that conversation arises. So they have three elements to crisis work just in general. And they are as follows, right? We divert, we divert people in crisis away from jail, divert people away from the emergency department when it's appropriate to do so, and then also provide a safe place for stabilization that offers the needed resources and support. It is one thing to divert from the ER or divert from jail, but then what? Where do they go, right? Like that the then what is what we're missing here. Um, and so just think if you can think about it that way. A couple of other considerations from lessons learned that you'll hear about from our panelists today that I have had numerous discussions over the years doing crisis work for um, almost 20 years now is about the relationship with first responders. So if it's clunky or if it's very difficult for first responders to navigate or to understand or to have to provide their own level of screening before they can take someone to the center, it's just simply not gonna be a resource that they utilize. Um, and as someone who works closely with law enforcement and has for many years, and I'm a criminal justice professional, I know this to be true. If it's clunky or difficult, it will not work with our first responders. Um, and the other lessons learned that we wanna listen for today is to involve stakeholders early on, um, really early on in the planning process, especially potential referral partners. So I'm talking about the hospitals, our local hospitals in our catchment areas, all three aspects of the criminal justice system, which include our court system, which include our correction system, and which include our police system, um, transportation services, you'll hear about that today as well. Um, all of our first responders, including our co-responders and our peer support professionals, school counselors, long-term care psych providers, and long-term care nursing home providers, um, anybody that touches anything that has to do with the unsheltered, unhoused, um, and the homeless population, veterans resources, and anyone that works with um, veterans, as we know, one in four homeless individuals in our country um, identify as a veteran. Um, and you know, one of the things just to keep in mind in general is the, the elements of the best practice is to respond to anyone in crisis anywhere at any time. And so if we think about you know, that as the, the, um, the, the goal, right? this overarching goal, it seems very simplistic. We wanna be able to respond to anyone in crisis anywhere at any time. What would that take? Then I think that can help set the foundation for this further conversation. I know it sounds like a big lofty goal, but um, as I said before, this is, it can be messy work, but necessary work. So um, with that, I, um, I wanna, oh, I wanna mention one more thing, just finally, just quickly. Um, it can seem daunting to secure funding for a crisis center. It, it can, it can seem daunting. Where are we gonna get the capital? How are we gonna make this happen? What about the personnel? Um, and especially when we're talking about 24 seven availability, we're, we're kind of getting into a whole different realm of, of needs here. 
Um, and so a little creativity, I think, can go a long way, as you'll hear today. So understanding federal and state Medicaid laws, um, understanding how the Medicaid expansion, which Washington State is one of 27 states that voted to expand Medicaid, so we do have expanded Medicaid here, um, and how other health insurance policies are key. These are key to figuring out funding efforts and determining what services can be billed under the law and also staying abreast on the changing laws or changing every day as we know um, is gonna be critical for the, for the early efforts in this, especially to secure capital. So I am very happy to know that we have experts standing by here on the call today to help us navigate those complicated insurance and payer source questions um, and to assist with that at any time, both on this call and afterwards. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague, Tiffany Rogers. Good morning, thank you so much. I should say good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are, as, as Anora uh, pointed out. So I'm Tiffany Rogers. I'm the market head for public and labor for Aetna, a member of the CBS Health family, and I'm delighted to be here with you all today. Aetna has a long history of supporting community-based intervention models that address the needs of our neighbors where they are, when they need it, and with seamless access to care. Just a little background on me, I was born and raised here in Seattle, so I am a native. I've been in the healthcare industry for 25 plus years. With eight of those years, I've been overseeing the public and labor sector and working at Aetna to support our clients and our local communities. We are really excited about the opportunities that will be presented to you today. We understand that mental health is a pervasive issue, both pre- and post-pandemic. At Aetna, we've created community-based, viable solutions to help support our clients, our local governments, area employers, our neighbors, and most importantly, our communities. With that in mind, we hope today's webinar engages you, challenges you, and inspires you. That it provokes you to think outside of your elected boundaries and look to new innovative care delivery systems that will truly drastically improve services to all residents. We hope today provides you an opportunity to gain insights into models that are tested and working to help people in need. We have a long history supporting our public clients and communities. We view ourselves as a trusted healthcare partner who's vested in the community we serve more connected to the people we serve and closer to home. We bring our heart to every moment and continually refine how we work, finding ourselves where innovation and compassion meet. Aetna CBS Healthcare provides really a very of solutions. Um, we've demonstrated that our products and resources allow us to deliver a human-centered health experience in ways that others simply can't. Through it all, we put our members first making sure that they're all empowered and engaged in their healthcare journey. Before we get started uh, with the presentation today, I just want to take a moment to introduce my team as each of us will lead a brief dialogue with the panelists and at the end of each presentation, there'll be a little bit of questions just as Anora called out. But don't worry, there will be time for Q&A for all three, um, once all three presenters have concluded their presentations. As subject matter experts and members of my executive team, I am pleased to be joined by both David Broom and Nancy Harris-Alexander. These two leaders have long, respectable tenures within the industry and are committed to serving here in the Northwest. They will introduce themselves a little bit later. Uh, before I go and turn it back over to Honora, I'd like to, again, thank Beyond Force, um, City of Kirkland, along with Mayor Sweet for bringing us all together to talk about such a critical issue. So thank you, and with Anora, I'll turn it back to you. 
Thank you so much, Tiffany. Um, and it is my pleasure to work alongside your team to bring this event together. So um, we're gonna go ahead and get started with um, our friends from Florida. So I'd like to introduce you to my colleague, Sunny Hall. She is the Vice President of Client Services and has been the Vice President of Client Services for the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay for nine years, where she supervises sexual assault services, gateway services, which is the 211 and the National Suicide Prevention Line. Um, and we're all in this county familiar with 211 services, it's the resource line and the Corbett Trauma Center. The mission of the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay is to ensure that no one in their community has to face a crisis alone. Their vision is that um, to, be ex to be that extraordinary place where all people, all people, including children, by the way, um, find help, hope, and healing to make tomorrow better. Um, for more than 40 years, four zero, the Crisis Center has been providing services to individuals and families who suffer distress from serious life crises. The Crisis Center employs a staff of over 230 individuals and responds to 165,000 calls for help each year. The Crisis Center is a community leader in the implementation of the trauma-informed care, both in service delivery and in organizational culture. And I had the personal pleasure of working very closely with Sunny and her team several years ago on an initiative in Tampa, and I was at the center, and it is a magical place. Um, it's a magical place that's looked to by the entire state of Florida for their, for their expertise. So with that, Sunny, I would uh, turn it over to you, and we're so excited. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, and morning for those of you who are, um, who are in the morning. So I appreciate the time uh, that you've given me to talk about the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. And I don't know about everybody on this call, but two years later, I'm still not really comfortable with the Zoom thing and the presentation thing. Um, so just uh, if, you, if, if you can't hear me or, or I say something weird, just call me out on it. And um, I also can't look at the Q&A stuff at the bottom because it's completely distracting. So I'm happy to answer any questions when we, when we finish up. So from the very beginning, as, um, as you heard, uh, over 40 years, actually this year is our 50th anniversary. And uh, for, so 50 years ago, and um, I obviously was not here then, um, we, there was a small group of people that wanted to start a crisis line. Um, and so they met, they convened in a community mental health center and began to publish a telephone number and started to take crisis calls. And through the years, uh, a few years later, the, the county, which is Hillsborough County uh, of, for Tampa, um, stepped in and offered to start funding the program. And it was the Hillsborough County Crisis Line. And that grew from there over the next 30 years to more nonprofits coming together, similar to what you've heard and is, is kind of the... Kind of how things worked back then is that nonprofits came together um, and said, listen, you know, we can't really do it on our own and there's more that we want to do. So little by little, different programs came and joined the crisis centers so that in, 19, uh, in the 1990s, the crisis center became the crisis center of Tampa Bay and incorporated a, all different programs and a lot of different um, outreach. Now, what's interesting about that, and I think that's important to people who are developing a crisis response, whatever that looks like, is that for many years, the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay did not understand or really hadn't really embraced yet exactly who we are and what is our identity. What is it that we, what is it that we do and what is it that we're good at? Um, and what do we wanna focus on? And so over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, um, we've done that. 
And uh, next slide, please. Thank you. We've done that by identifying a very simple mission statement. And that very simple mission statement is that our mission is that no one in our community has to face crisis alone. And what that means is what's the best, most efficient way that we can immediately respond to someone who might be in crisis. We understand that for us uh, and in this community, our role in that response is telephonic um, for the most part, not completely. Um, but we started with telephonic response and, and that is our largest response uh, for crisis intervention. Our community has already through the years come together as a collaborative and identified who is doing what. So we are responding to crisis immediately in the moment. We are then helping to assess what that crisis requires, what, these, what the person needs, and then being able to offer them either information and referral or crisis counseling in real time, um, or a follow-up that will connect people to services that our partners will, will provide. The community mental health uh, system, medical system, and I'll, I'll talk in a little bit about a new, a new venture that we're, we're really excited about, which is developing an urgent care response. Not, not emergent, but urgent care, uh, where people can access uh, mental health as they would if you sprained your ankle and you went down to the urgent care center. Um, so, so the identifying who we are as a crisis intervention was key. And then that took us then to our next stage, um, next slide please, where we um, identified how we're gonna deliver that service. And, and you recall that back in the you know, 2000s, 2010, people started talking about trauma and started really understanding um, what trauma is and what trauma does to the brain and what trauma is to people who are, who've experienced it. And we started learning a lot about trauma-informed care and started talking about how do we, how do we incorporate that into our, our service to clients. But then it, it really came to the forefront that not only was trauma-informed care critically important to how we approached people, but it was also critically important in how we approached each other and how we approached our staff. And so we incorporated the, the philosophy and it's, it's evolving. I mean, we are still having those conversations around what does that mean? What we know is that trauma is pervasive and that um, it, it, you know, it's 80% of the population have experienced trauma and, and, and at least half of those are experiencing symptoms related to that trauma. So our philosophy with our clients and with our staff is safety first and do no harm. And when we talk about what's happened to people rather than what's wrong with people, it's a, it's a very powerful um, foundation in which we build our, our programs and it helps us, it guides us into determining what programs, what funding, and what, uh, what's our next step as we move forward with providing services to our community. Next slide, please. So, um, over the, like I said, over the course of the year, there were many different programs that worked within the crisis center, but, but hallelujah, 10, 12 years ago, we really identified our purpose, our mission is crisis, and these are the three areas of focus, only three areas of focus that the crisis center of Tampa Bay um, aspires to. One is our Corbett Trauma Center. Our Corbett Trauma Center is where we um, house our sexual assault response. Obviously, someone experiencing sexual assault, that is an acute trauma with long-lasting effects. So we respond to the acute trauma by having a forensic nursing clinic in our building, allowing people to come to our building rather than going to a hospital. 
And in the Tampa Bay area, we have dozens of hospitals and dozens of emergency rooms. And for the consistent de delivery of care, collection of evidence, support for victims is almost is impossible with that many um, that many providers. So the community <laughs> agreed that this should be a one place, one one agency whose expertise is working with and addressing the issue of sexual assault, and that was the crisis center. In fact, back in the 70s, uh, the nurses that started the program for forensic nursing actually literally wrote the book for the state of Florida around the appropriate um, mechanisms to collect evidence and the appropriate um, approach in forensic exams. So we have a clinic, and in our clinic, we see, um, we see about 350 people a year for exams, and I'll kind of get a little more detailed about that in just a second. Secondly, we also have our counseling program. You know, it's one thing to identify crisis and trauma. It's one thing to say, okay, we're going to focus on people who have experienced trauma. And, and that trauma could be anything from being a victim of a crime to the loss of a, a spouse um, or bullying or, you know, or, it, or any of the things that cause people to um, absorb trauma and then impact their lives. But we also want to be able to treat it. And we want to be able to treat it with evidence-based practices. Um, that are specific to trauma. So we provide on, uh, outpatient trauma therapy. We do only trauma therapy using practices specific to trauma recovery. We do partner with other mental health providers and we have a, a, a seamless, sort of seamless system of ensuring that people are connected to other psychiatric or ongoing psychiatric care um, once we address the, the issues of trauma. Uh, Gateway Services is... Um, where our call center is located. I'm going to get into exactly what we do there just because I think there's a, some really good detail there in terms of responding to crisis. And then TransCare is a medical transportation service that I will tell you about in just a second. Next slide, please. So, um, I I mentioned uh, 211, and, and this is where we started. You know, we started with a hotline, we started with the crisis line, and then in the 2000s, when the three-digit codes were approved by the FCC, um, the crisis center applied and was granted the license for 211 in, in Hillsborough County. So since then, though, we, we have recognized that this process of people calling is a, is a very powerful tool of accessing crisis help immediately. Even today, I hear a lot. People want to text. People don't want to talk on the phone. And I'm here to tell you that is absolutely... Um, not across the board true. Yes, people do enjoy texting to a point, but I, I will tell you that in the last two years during the pandemic, our calls increased um, over 20,000 calls. We also have a text and chat line, which did not increase. People want to hear a human and they want to be able to talk in real time about what's happening to them. So we said, well, there are other populations that will benefit from this. So we became the um, Hillsborough County provider for the suicide prevention, the National Suicide Prevention Line. Um, we get uh, anywhere from uh, 80 to 120 calls a week through the suicide prevention line. Um, the Florida Veterans Support Line is something we started about oh, six years ago. We were talking to veterans that would call through 211 and realized that we really weren't having an impact. And so we, we started talking to the VA. Here and we started talking to our community and we realized that we needed to have veterans employed to work with veterans when they call in and then doing the follow-up. And we took it one step further. We took it into the idea that not only do we want veterans, but we want veterans with lived experience. We want veterans who've experienced the mental health system 
and veterans who've experienced crisis so that and have come on and have come through to the other side. And they're able to talk about their recovery and able to talk about their resiliency. And so we've been, we've, we were funded a little bit for a small little program to offer follow-up services and to answer a veteran support line that we created. Um, unfortunately, about four years ago, the state of Florida and the United States Veterans Administration recognized that this was a powerful project and funded it um, for statewide for the next uh, couple of years. Um, where it was in every, you know, every couple of years, we go back and look at funding and we can talk about that and how, how we get that funding. Uh, recently, we were just awarded, uh, literally last week, a state contract to provide our Florida Hero Helpline, which is a first responder uh, line specific for first responders who've experienced trauma, who, and we know the stories about first responders and what they go through. The, the Tampa Bay area has been just awash in tragedies related to first responders, suicide, murder-suicides, um, and, and our community said, you know what, this crisis, line, crisis center, what can we do? What should we be doing? And so people have come forward. We've been able to put together some great funding, including this, this contract from the state, and we have implemented um, the Florida Hero Helpline. Um, and then finally, we are the statewide substance abuse um, provider. People can call us from all over the state, and we have access to resources that will be able to get them connected to substance abuse. And, and again, um, you know, I'm just going to give you guys a warning. When you, do the, when you do a good job, people are going to keep asking you to do more. Um, and and they, the county has come to us now in the last couple of weeks and asked us to start uh, to pilot a, a project in Florida, involuntary admission for substance abuse is called the March Mail. And they've asked us to start a Marchment Act navigation um, program where we will help families navigate that process so that, that people who need to have uh, acute intervention for substance abuse can get it um, in, and na navigate their way through the court system. So that, that, that's coming soon. Next slide. Um, so I, I want to be, um, I, I want to talk just for a minute about this, this, this aspect of what we do, you know, responding to trauma and crisis in the moment is, is important, but a lot of people, as you know, need that continuing follow-up. We're not a drop-in, we're not a walk-in per se. Obviously, sexual assault services, which I will talk about in a minute, does have an element of walk-in and drop-in, but our drop-in is the phone call, but then there's also that follow-up. And so what we've incorporated is a model of care coordination and the things that we provide care coordination for uh, our suicide prevention, wherein somebody calls in our philosophy and approach to suicide prevention, and people get really nervous about suicide prevention, but let me tell you, over the years, you know, 50 years of doing this, we aspire to SAMHSA's, um, uh, SAMHSA's uh, practice of, of safety now, right? Safety now, uh, and then connection, and then linkages and letting, and we call it blessing links. So our, our, our goal is to keep you out of a involuntary process. We only, we call it role intervention. If someone calls our line and we feel like they desperately do need some sort of acute intervention, we can do that. But we, we've done that less than 1% of all the calls that we've gotten for suicide prevention. We do, I think, contribute that to the suicide prevention care coordination. Immediately following that, that safety now, the safety plans in place, um, the, the person is then given um, to, given some connection to a care coordinator who will call them, set up safety plans, link them to services, and call them two, three times a day if that's what they need, and set up a telephonic system of supporting that person. 
Human trafficking is something the county has asked us to do very similarly for uh, suicide prevention. Human trafficking victims can, can uh, when, when they call us, we can connect them with a care coordinator and again, help that person navigate a very difficult system of uh, coming out of human trafficking. And we can, we can get into that for a long time. Um, advocacy, which is basically working with folks who've been victims and helping them identify what their services are. We have veterans care coordinators, as I said earlier. These are peers with lived experience. Um, our youth and transition program is for kids 15 to 24. We have an enormous um, population of homeless youth in Florida, and especially in the Tampa Bay area. And then we also have uh, kids who are aging out of foster care, and then just kids who are just really confused and struggling with how they navigate that, that, that transition to adulthood. Um, and then first responders, as I mentioned, and then we have a, a, a small child development book that just came out of nowhere for parents who are really um, struggling with how to navigate the child development um, system in Florida, especially in Tampa, we're way behind on kids being ready to read when they get in first grade. And a lot of parents have no idea how to navigate that. So we, could, we provide that to them. Next slide, please. So uh, real quick in the Corporate Trauma Center, I mentioned trauma counseling. I've told you about that. I told you about suicide prevention. That's where those um, programs live. Um, the way it works is that somebody calls either the suicide line or the veterans line or 211. We have those conversations. If they need ongoing counseling, we connect them through our electronic health record system um, and are able to get them uh, connected to trauma counseling. Same is true for suicide prevention care coordination. Sexual assault services is an acute response or it's, it's delayed based on the need of the, of the client. So someone can call 211 or call one of our other helplines and say that they've been sexually assaulted and they're immediately patched through to an on-call nurse who will speak with them, gather information, who contacts an advocate. And those folks come to our clinic and provide a forensic exam and then also um, will provide advocacy and ongoing support and, and follow-up. Clients do not have to report to law enforcement, though we have a, an excellent relationship with law enforcement in our area. Um, law enforcement brings the clients to us 90% of the time. That's how they, if someone reports to law enforcement and they want a forensic exam, law enforcement brings them to us. The demand has been so great. Hillsborough County is a huge county. Um, and, and a lot of folks who live in the south, southern part of our county, it would take them an hour to get here, four or five hours for an exam and an hour back. That's a six, seven hour day. And a lot of the folks in South County are migrant workers or people who are working uh, blue collar by the hour jobs. So the county has worked with us and we are opening a new clinic down in our South area, um, probably in August, where we hope to see um, our ability to serve even more um, victims of sexual assault. Next slide, please. I mentioned earlier 322 forensic exams. That's not the only thing we do when people, uh, you know, for forensic exams, you have a five-day um, window to collect evidence. And we see people go outside of that window. And last year, we served over 580 people who were not sexually assaulted within that five days, but had been sexually assaulted at some point in their lives. Um, and so we provide that service as well in sexual assault. Next, next slide. Transcare is an interesting thing. Back when we were um, doing a crisis line, back in the 80s, and um, uh, you know, involuntary commitment was, was kind of you know, taking off, especially here in Florida. Um, again, uh, the Hillsborough County came to us and said, is there anything you guys can do to help us figure this out? And we came up uh, with our partners in the community with, I think, is a very unique system 
by which if law enforcement or another qualified individual determines that a person does need to be involuntarily committed, in Florida, we call that a Baker Act, um, they will call, instead of putting the person in a police vehicle, they'll call us and we'll come and uh, determine if the person needs to ride in an ambulance or if the person can be transported in a van. Um, we were doing that for probably 20 years and realized that there was still a need for us to do more. So we entered into a uh, process of being licensed as a basic life support system and responding to 911 calls for the city of Tampa. This year, in the last three months, we've been certified now as an advanced life support. So we're able to provide community care medicine and advanced life support um, services to people who are, and our focus is, yes, responding to general 911, but our focus is really um, using that ALS uh, certification to identify people who are struggling with um, mental health or struggling with other uh, emotional-based uh, symptoms and have physical concerns and trying to intercede and, and provide services for them that are both medical and from a trauma-informed perspective by people who are trained to provide that kind of emotional support. Next slide. Uh, just really quick on um, funding. I only have two more minutes, so I wanna make sure I cover this. We have a development team that are, um, they are gutsy and they are nimble and they um, amaze me in the fact that they are able to, to they have a, a, a very strict system on how they raise funds. And, and you can see here is just an example of, of something that we did during right at the beginning of COVID. We created a, a COVID helpline with, with help from uh, one of our state agency um, uh, mental health funders. And so we were able to get that out to people so that people knew that there was, there was specific help. And our development team, of course, helped us develop that and get that out there. Our development team raises over $1.7 million a year. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of information I could give you about how they do that. Um, but it's one of the, we have three legs of funding and the development is one leg. Next slide, please. Really quick, I'll show you just some basic high level overview of the different kinds of funding. You'll see VOCA, the VA, those are, those are federal funding opportunities, as well as DCF, which is a state, but a lot of federal funding comes through the state and then is passed on to us. Unfortunately, Florida was not a Medicaid expanded state. And so we are having to be very creative with our state partners um, and to access federal funds and to access dollars that can be available to us. Um, Transcare is the second leg. Transcare does those transportation, provides transportation. And in the beginning, the county paid those bills. And now the county does pay for the mental health transport. But now we're able to bill third-party insurance company for the 911 transport. So that also provides um, uh, kind of a flow off. Uh, uh, if there's any profit to that, it goes right back into client services. And then client services, obviously, is funded by grants and some, um, some benefactors. And that's the third one of our financial um, structure. Next slide. That's what I have to tell you about that's quick and, 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 and um, easy. I'm happy to take questions and I'll go as deep as you want, but you don't have much time. So um, I'm available. My email uh, is right there. You can email me and I'm, I'm happy to give you as much information as I can. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sunny. This is uh, Nancy Harris, and I am a representative of Aetna. Your presentation was fantastic. It's very impressive, all the services that the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay has been able to provide in the community and, and very much needed. 
I do have one question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, with the current workforce crisis um, that's going on in the United States right now, <clears throat> I heard you say you had over 200 employees. And I'm just curious how you've been able to recruit and retain your healthcare professionals, your counselors, and your advocates within your organization. You know, I'm glad to hear. Where are you located, Nancy? In Seattle. Okay, great. So you're at the you're as far away from us as you could possibly get. Yes. <laughs> and uh, unless I was in Key West, and and we are. It's 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 heartening to hear that you're having those issues too. Um, and it, this has been a challenge. It is a huge challenge. And, and I will tell you really quick. You know, when the pandemic came and everybody had to, you know, everybody was sending everybody home. We have never ever sent our call center anywhere but here. And we, we had to do that for a while. And, and I'll be honest with you, that that was um, that was rough. That was hard. And since then, of course, we quickly brought as many people back as possible. But we're facing the same challenges. And, and a couple of things that we were doing, um, and we're not we're not hitting it out of the park. But uh, we, because of, because of, number one, our culture is that trauma informed culture. So we, we do have a lot of place for for safety and for talking about it and for. You know, trying to be flexible and working with people about where they are. Um, the second thing is, um, you know, we were able to access some funding for hazard pay and things like that when we were open, you know, throughout the pandemic. And now um, being able to raise, you know, our funders have been very generous and so we've written in higher wages for some of our frontline staff. So we've been able to start collecting that and start being able to offer higher wages. And I think the, the last thing is, is really offering people opportunities and, and flexibility. So a person can come into our call center and answer the phones for a year, and they can transition then into a care coordinator, and then they can transition to a, a, an advocate. And then we also have built in other opportunities for leadership. We've created you know, uh, field supervisors, assistant field supervisors, leads, places where we can help people get to uh, where they want to go. And, and finally, a really unique thing is that we've partnered with a, a local um, uh, education um, uh, it's, they're an academy, I guess. They do they do uh, medical training for medical technicians, and so we've entered into a part, partnership with them where they will train people to be paramedics, and then we will put them to work while they're in training and apprenticeship, and and we'll be able to pay them. And the the, the academy has obtained funding to be able to pay for their education. And then they give us another year after. So things like that that we've worked out with several several community partners. Thank you. Thank you for that response. Honora, I'll go ahead and hand it back to you. Thank you, Sunny. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so looking forward to coming back and seeing you in person at some point um, in Tampa. In Tampa. You're overdue, Honora. I know. Thank you so much. Um, I will be there uh, tonight. Okay. So um, I would love the weather. Uh, so, um, and Nancy, thank you for that question because I, I do want to underscore that that is a crunch that people are feeling throughout the nation. You know, one of my passions is workforce development when it comes to this um, to this work. And we, we do need to develop a strong, robust workforce and continue that starting very, very early on from everybody, from peer support professionals and individuals with lived experience, all the way to a psychiatrist and everybody in between. Um, it, it, we are, you know, it's sort of a desperate dearth of working professionals out there. And you will hear that throughout all of the presentations today. So it's sort of this, you know, um, it's comforting, uh, it's frustrating, but it's comforting that this is not a, a local issue. Um, so with that, 
Um, we're going to move forward here to Mercy Care, um, our friends in a, another sunny place, Arizona. Um, so I'd like to introduce you to my two colleagues here, Shelly. Um, Shelly Curran, she, we, have, we have two speakers today from Mercy Care. So Shelly um, is the Director of Crisis Cultural, Preve Crisis Cultural Prevention and Court Programs for Mercy Care. Shelly, do you have a massive business card? I feel like that's, the, that's a longer title than I have. It's great. Um, but that shows you how much she's, how comprehensive uh, her programs are. Um, there at uh, in Arizona. So she oversees the court advocacy and jail diversion teams, which include mental health professionals um, who work as a bridge between the clients, the families, and the criminal legal system. She's responsible for ongoing development and oversight of the Maricopa County 24-hour crisis system, 24 hours, which is a coordinated system of entry into crisis services that are community-based, recovery-oriented, and member-focused. Shelly also leads the team members working in areas of crisis, cultural competency, prevention, tribal relations, um, and I want to underscore that, tribal relations, and court programs in collaboration, data collection standards, and communication in order to enhance quality of care, leading to better healthcare outcomes. She works to expand provider networks that can provide a full array of crisis, prevention, and court services that are geared towards members and expected to maintain health and enhance member quality of life. That is her underlying goal. She also utilizes data to inform service delivery and coordination of care that is critical to the effectiveness of the overall delivery system. So that's Shelly. And then our second speaker from Mercy Care is Tanisha, Tanisha Hildebrand. Her title is Crisis and Veterans Services Administrator. As the Crisis and Veterans Services Administrator for Mercy Care, Tanisha oversees a system that covers more than four million people and includes a central hotline, uh, a mobile crisis team, as we're all familiar with, urgent psychiatric centers, and respite, detox, and transitional facilities. She's also uh, a veteran. She's an Army veteran, and she works closely with local law enforcement, the VA, the Veterans Administration, where I worked um, for uh, an entire decade, so I really do understand that dynamic, hospitals, fire departments, and community crisis providers to enhance ongoing collaboration and explore new opportunities to improve the system and member outcomes. Additionally, Tanisha partners with community organizations and first responders, providing training and education, such as CIT training for law enforcement, also close to my heart. So without further ado, we would love to hear from our friends in Arizona, Mercy Care. Good morning. Thank you so much. And although we are in Phoenix, you will probably hear the thunderstorm behind me. <laughs> so it's a, it's a rainy day here in Phoenix. Um, this is Shelly. I'm going to go ahead and get us started. And go to our next slide. Thank you. Just a little bit about Mercy Care. Um, Mercy Care is a not-for-profit organization um, here in the state of Arizona. We've been serving uh, the residents of Arizona for over 35 years. Um, we, are, we have two sponsors, Ascension and Dignity Health, and Mercy Care is, um, you know, governed by our board of directors. Um, it just so happens, though, that the way that Aetna and CVS is attached to Mercy Care is that Mercy Care, um, all of the staff that work at Mercy Care um, are Aetna employees. So we are Aetna employees working on behalf of Mercy Care. So that's where the link is um, between Mercy Care and Aetna. And go to the next one. And we have several different lines of business with Mercy Care. Um, we are in Arizona, a Medicaid expansion state as well. 
This just gives you a just brief overview of our the different populations that we serve. Uh, these are Medicaid uh, populations for the most part. Um, and ACCESS is our Arizona Healthcare Cost Containment System. Arizona was, uh, I think, the last state to, to join on to, to Medicaid, but we think we were the first state when we came in to actually have managed care as part of Medicaid. So our, um, we have a state agency that is uh, the managed care entity that then contracts with various health plans to uh, manage the Medicaid benefits. And this is our crisis funding in Maricopa County. So I just wanted to spend some time, um, similar to, to what we just saw um, with Sunny, is that we have to have blended funding. You're not going to be able to have a crisis system that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to any person in, in our state. Um, any person in our state is eligible for crisis services. It doesn't matter if they're just passing through. It doesn't matter if they're insured, uninsured, undocumented anyone in the state of Arizona is eligible for our services. And the way that we're able to do that is through this blended funding. So we have state dollars um, that are just appropriated to access um, from our legislature. Uh, we've got Maricopa County dollars. And Maricopa County is the largest county in Arizona, and that's the county that Mercy Care serves. There's an IGA between access and Maricopa County. Um, there are some requirements that counties have in Arizona to provide um, court-ordered evaluation, you know, civil commitment, um, to be able to do some basic crisis services, um, the alcohol receiving centers, just things that had typically been a county responsibility. But in order to be able to have this crisis system that truly is no wrong door and serves anybody, um, there was an agreement between the county and access that the funding would come to us and Mercy Care um, as the Regional Behavioral Health Authority so that we can have a seamless crisis system. Um, there's um, the Medicaid funding. Oh, one, go back. I'm almost done. Um, there's Medicaid funding. There's SAMHSA uh, federal grant dollars. Um, we've got some um, different funding coming from cities through um, ARPA and CURSA. So just any place that we can find funding, we grab it. And then that goes to Access and Mercy Care and then eventually to our crisis providers. All right, next slide. Thank you. And something that Access put in place, um, which really is novel, is that although Mercy Care, we are one of the Access health plans, but we don't serve everybody who's on Access. There's five other health plans that serve people in our state um, that are on Medicaid. But what Access has done for the regional behavioral health authorities, which Mercy Care is, is for every single person that's on Access in our region, they provide us with a $7.04 per member per month payment. And so this way, even though they're not necessarily our members, we get that, we get that funding for crisis services. And this is the foundation of our crisis system. It's not the only funding we have, but this is what keeps the lights on in our crisis facilities because you really have to have a firehouse model. You can't just pay fee for service when someone comes in the door, then the, you know, then the psychiatric um, you know, receiving center will bill us, or then the crisis phone line will bill us just based on how many people call in, or the mobile teams will just bill us based on you know, how many people they go out to see. We need to give them that safety net that we will make sure that you've got at least enough funding to be able to keep the lights on, whether business is really booming or whether you're, you're having a slow couple months. 
And this is part of our block funding that we fund our crisis system with. So our crisis providers know that every month they've got a certain amount of, of, of money that's going to come into them, regardless of what uh, kind of volume they're seeing. Right, so that's uh, um, part of my presentation. And now I'm going to hand it over to Tanisha. Thanks, Shelley. Uh, we're gonna talk about um, a lot of different partnerships that we have between crisis system, Mercy Care, our relationship as the uh, regulator um, funder for crisis services and the different municipalities. We work with um, 25 plus local, county, state, federal, tribal law enforcement agencies here in um, our region, which includes Maricopa County and a portion of Pinal County. But very specifically, Phoenix, Mesa, and Tempe um, are three uh, municipalities that we've worked closely with around some different work uh, for a 911 call diversion, um, some navigator follow-up work, uh, the treat and refer is a, um, one of our fire departments, Surprise Fire Department, has long been um, a, a great collaborator in the way of recognizing that an ambulance is not necessarily the preferred method for getting somebody over to a crisis facility. And so through their treat and refer in, a, in an unmarked um, non-BLS, ALS uh, sort of um, a vehicle, they're able to get individuals over to our crisis facilities. So lots of work that we've been doing with fire, um, but you'll, you'll, you'll hear a lot about what we've been doing with um, our law enforcement partners. So next slide. CIT is huge uh, in my world. It's a lot of what I do. It is one of the most exciting parts of what I do. Um, I know that that Many of you are already familiar with how and why CIT came to be, so I won't uh, belabor that. But I like to, when talking about CIT, is this, con this concept of partner in that while you may have embedded clinicians um, in, in co-responder models, you might have uh, clinicians who are hired by police departments, fire departments to do many of these things. What we're talking about is the, the intersection between law enforcement and behavioral health, that partnership, um, leveraging in advocates, um, other parts of the community, that partnership. And what's really special about it is that aside from the 40 hour training that we do for law enforcement alongside um, uh, other crisis providers and our law enforcement partners, is also educating the community. Because until we get to a point where more people in the community know what resources exist, the default tends to be 911. If I traveled to uh, a state that I wasn't familiar with what those crisis services are pre-988, I think I would be, I would be um, misinformed about what services exist, but I know what 911 is going to get me. So we do educating, we, we educate the community in and around um, this is what happens when you call for law enforcement. This is what happens when you access crisis resources. We talk about domestic violence because here in Arizona, um, there, um, there are some mandatory requirements around that. 
we're just basically saying, here's all the information, you make of it what makes the most sense for you and know your resources and how to access it. We've talked to uh, NAMI family to family, the refugee community, um, any and every opportunity that we have to get the word out about crisis resources, even through law enforcement who we've trained in CIT. If they're getting that call from someone, you know, they may not have to call for a mobile team. They may not have to take that person someplace. And, and I'll talk more about our services and the whole continuum. But perhaps they're also educating that person. Hey, did you know that this crisis line exists? Did you know that these resources exist? So we're both sort of in that collaboration, working together to um, better inform the community and support the community in our own ways. So next slide. And I know we have a video. Um, which we're super proud of as well. But I don't think we're hearing it. One moment. Being awarded the Gold Seal Certification from CIT International in partnership with Mercy Care and the Tempe Police Department provides validation for all of the work that we have been doing. We are committed in the continuous training of our officers who respond to behavioral health incidents, allowing them to provide the best service to all of those who are in crisis. This is the, the partnership. Um, this is the heart and soul of what CIT International and CIT is meant to accomplish and serving the community through these partnerships between behavioral health and law enforcement. Thank you for that. Um, we have three CIT programs here, here in our region. Um, this was the gold status certification for one of those. Um, Mercy Care participates with all three of them. So um, in looking at the whole state of Arizona, you can see that Mercy Care covers this um, just a small county land-wise here in Arizona, but 60% of the whole state's population is in Maricopa County. Um, we also cover uh, a portion of Pinal County. So while we have less land mass, we, um, we do have the potential for serving a lot more people who, um, to Shelley's point, they could be passing through Arizona, they could be passing um, in between parts of Arizona, um, but we, we serve everybody within our, within our region um, and then make sure that we're connecting people to ongoing supports if necessary. So next slide. We're very fortunate um, that we have a very robust and vibrant um, crisis system that is very accessible both to our public safety partners and to the community. Uh, I think it's important too to understand that the partnerships that we have and the system that we have is quite literally 20 years 
in the making. What you're seeing today is, is a lot of work by a lot of people for many years getting us to where we're at. So we like to think of our crisis line as that portal into the crisis system. Um, you may not know what resources exist, but if you know that that crisis line number, then you can probably get a vast majority of the resources that you need. Uh, we have our crisis mobile teams that are dispatched out of the crisis line and then our facility-based services. Next slide. Our crisis phone line is operated by, um, by Solari here in the central region. Um, they do operate several other lines. Uh, separate from the crisis line, be connected for uh, veteran service members and their families. Um, there's a line for uh, law enforcement, for fire. There's a warm line, uh, which is great for individuals who wanna talk to somebody else who, um, who has a lived experience, that peer perspective. Uh, but essentially our crisis line, we're gonna try to deescalate those calls as much as possible and, and right around 89, 90% of the time they're able to do that telephonically. But if they're not able to, they can dispatch that, that mobile team to wherever the person is at. For law enforcement, 100% of the time they call the crisis line and ask for a mobile team, they're going to get that mobile team. Uh, we try to impart to our, our public safety partners that you can call the crisis line um, to get the mobile team. You might be spending a little bit of time just waiting for the mobile team to arrive. So there might be information that, can, that could be shared to also help deescalate that crisis situation, such as a, an at-risk safety plan. Um, if the person is connected to a clinical team, perhaps the clinical team or an on-call might be able to um, come and, and relieve the officer, um, be able to give information, what works, what doesn't, as much as that we can um, try to do to support both our crisis providers and our first responders who might be interacting with somebody. Last year, we added uh, a texting capability into our phone line. Um, so really great opportunity to connect with people who otherwise um, may not wanna talk on the phone. Next slide. Our mobile teams are all two-person teams. Um, they could be a licensed clinician. They could be a BHT. Um, either or both could have a personal perspective of recovery or family perspective. Um, considering the very diverse community that we, that we live in and serve, it stands to reason that the individuals delivering crisis services are also very diverse in who they are. Um, and while they may have a broad overview of delivering trauma-informed um, services, you might have a veteran, you might have um, you know, a tribal community member, you may have all sorts of uh, different individuals who are delivering those crisis services. We do, through our whole continuum, serve both children and adults. Um, our response time to the community is, is around 60 minutes. Uh, for law enforcement, it is prioritized. Um, so we're going to get that mobile team out as, as quickly as possible to our first responders, really to um, get them back out to other calls for service. We do encourage law enforcement, if it's, a, if it's a home or an address or an individual that they've gone out to frequently before, they know that this tends to be a behavioral health call, 
that they can call the crisis line and ask for that mobile team to co-respond. If the officer arrives and they decide, you know what, I don't need the mobile team, I'm going to take this person to a facility or we've, we've resolved the crisis, they can always cancel that mobile team. But it could save them a little bit of time if they if they do still want the mobile team to arrive. It's also possible that that the primary person in crisis might opt to go with law enforcement someplace, but the mobile team could still support the family. The family might also still be struggling in the home. So however we can tailor those crisis intervention services for the individual and the family um, is really ideal. Next slide. We have several voluntary adult facilities and resources um, here in our community, two detox facilities. We have a respite. Next slide. We have three facilities that offer involuntary and voluntary services for adults. Shelly talked about our Title 36 uh, civil commitment involuntary process, um, which is these three facilities are, are where those processes um, work through. And next slide. Last year, we were super excited to have our first children's crisis facility. And again, all of our crisis system is no wrong door. We don't expect um, law enforcement to have to figure out is this uh, substance uses, this mental health, we just say bring them to us. And, and in fact, aside from our children's facility, we know that law enforcement have brought individuals with dementia and Alzheimer's to our facilities saying, we know that this is probably not the place, but we don't really think that they should be where they're at. So um, super excited. Two of the three locations for our children's crisis facilities, um, they're currently open. Our metro location um, should be open this week or next week as they work through some of those final details. But um, very exciting to support that population. And, and it's a, um, a psychiatrist and a pediatrician working alongside uh, the, the child in crisis, the family unit in crisis to support them. Next slide. I deal in a lot of data and data drives a lot of what we do, as you all know. Um, you can see our crisis line volume. Interestingly, 2020, 2021, nationally, many crisis lines experienced a, a decrease in crisis line volume. Um, we noticed across our crisis uh, resources in general, there was a, a bit of a, a dip, different data um, to show different things I think we'll continue to learn. But we did see that while the average community might not have been accessing those resources at the same rate pre-pandemic, we did see that law enforcement was continuing even at a higher rate of bringing people to our system. And you see that we really try not to transfer calls back to 911 unless it's absolutely necessary. And even in those cases, we really want to get law enforcement out of there as quickly as possible back to other calls for service. Next slide. And our crisis mobile teams, you can see we have an increase in our mobile team usage in the past year, our response times to both community and law enforcement, which I think is key. Um, if, if law enforcement, I think uh, Anora talked about in the beginning, if it's clunky, if it doesn't work, if it's not accessible, then um, no one's going to use it. So we want to make it fast. We want to always say yes. We want to never say no. Um, we've even had 
not that we encourage it, but we had someone with a gunshot wound who was brought to one of our facilities and they said, thank you. Um, may we have another? And then as soon as law enforcement left, you know, they were quickly calling for an ambulance. Again, how can we be really good partners to law enforcement and, and the community? Um, you can see that over overwhelmingly our mobile teams are able to stabilize that individual in their crisis in the community right where they're at, which is um, really key. Next slide. Our total police drop offs for our facilities has increased year over year. Our total police diversions, uh, that's to, um, to the mobile teams to our facilities has increased last year, um, almost 29,000 diversions. Um, you can see our overall crisis facility volume to which I talked about may have had a decrease, but overall police drop-offs have continued. And the 911 call diversion, recognizing that right at communications with Phoenix and Mesa, if the call doesn't need to go to an officer, if there isn't a safety concern, let's get that call over to our crisis line, better support that individual in crisis. Next slide. And that's all. Well, I could talk forever about it, but I, I know my time is up. <laughs> all right, I think we have a question from David. Hi, I didn't know you were waiting for me. My apologies. Hi, everybody. I'm David Broom. I'm with Aetna in the Pacific Northwest. I lead the account teams for Aetna's large public sector customers up in the Pacific Northwest in Alaska. And I have a question for the Mercy Care team. Given that you guys have had quite a bit of experience, I, th I think you said 20 plus years, um, um, there's probably been um, a lot of points along the way um, that maybe things happened that weren't expected. And that always happens when you're developing a program and evolving it with changing dynamics in the market and whatnot. So the question is, what are some of the big things that you think could inform the folks on the phone about what you encountered that they might be able to anticipate and remedy before it happens? I think, I think one of the key things is our, uh, our oversight of our crisis providers and what we contractually expect from them, um, that they're adhering to that no wrong door, that they're adhering to those SAMHSA best practices, um, but also the relationship with first responders. We have uh, meetings between law enforcement, between our CAT coordinators, and our crisis facilities um, between, we're, we're going to be having a mobile team crisis line law enforcement meeting. Um, we share openly the data. We encourage law enforcement to bring to us if they're experiencing something other than what we have um, promised that they would experience. We know that bumps are going to happen. We know that something is going to not go as expected. But through those relationships that we've built rapport, we're transparent, we're, um, we're sensitive to 
the difficulties that they're experiencing. How can we make it better? I think that really is the key. Lean into those relationships. Um, I did a lot of ride-alongs early on as I came into this work. Um, I, I'm, I'm very eager to always take whatever the experience that people are having, work with our providers um, to deliver that, that just very exceptional care to the community and to our, our public safety partners. Thank you. Excellent. And we appreciate the presentation very much. And Nora, back to you, please. Thank you so much, David. And uh, Tanisha and Shelley, again, another impressive presentation. Um, and for those of you who have put questions in the Q&A, thank you so much. We will get to your questions um, at the Q&A portion. So thank you very much. Um, I do have I do have note of those. So um, we're gonna we're gonna move forward here in the interest of time as well to um, my colleague Jennifer Hibbert. So she is the um, CEO of Viewpoint Health from the state of Georgia. And Jennifer Hibbert lives and works in Gwinnett County um, and is a licensed professional counselor, a fellow mental health professional, and the chief executive officer at Viewpoint Health, where she has worked for more than 18 years. So during her tenure at Viewpoint Health, she has had the pleasure to serve in a variety of positions. She began her career as a straight up intake clinician, just like I did, Jennifer, at one of the mental health outpatient centers. She had the opportunity to be the chief operating officer, vice president of programs, director of QA, and the center director. Um, she also serves on several local boards um, of Gwinnett County. And I wanna just take a moment to thank the chairwoman of Gwinnett County, Ms. Nicole Love Hendrickson, um, for introducing me to Jennifer. And uh, with that, Jennifer, take it away. Good afternoon. Thank you so much. And I also just want to say thank you to my colleagues from Florida and Arizona that presented prior to me. I took a lot of notes myself and learned a whole lot. And I think that's one of the things that you're going to hear from my presentation is even though we've been doing this work for a while, we are still a work in progress and we still have a lot to learn. And uh, you will not just come right out of the gate with the perfect system. Uh, you have to always be willing to, to evolve and improve. So Viewpoint Health is just one part of the crisis continuum within the state of Georgia. So my first few slides are going to take a step back from Viewpoint Health and kind of lay the landscape so that you understand where we fit in with the whole network uh, throughout the state. So this is the crisis continuum in Georgia. Georgia has, the state of Georgia did not expand Medicaid. So we have not expanded Medicaid yet. So we still have uh, state funds that are used to fund uh, individuals who are uninsured. And those state funds are blended with state and federal dollars, some from SAMHSA block grants, um, and then some from the state. And those are managed by our State Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. So as a community service board, we are contracted with that state department. And so the state department has developed this crisis continuum of Georgia, and it's really three components. When somebody's in crisis, we want to have someone to talk to, someone to respond, and somewhere to go. So my next slide starts with the someone to talk to. So in Georgia, um, and my little Georgia scooted over, it's actually GCAL, so Georgia Crisis and Access Line. So the Georgia Crisis and Access Line serves as that statewide phone number that is 24 seven, 365 days a year. And in July, that's the number, it's a 1-800 number now, it's gonna convert to the 988 
statewide, uh, which will be the National uh, Suicide Hotline. And so at GCAL, they provide telephonic intervention, so somebody to talk to. They also dispatch the response team, the mobile crisis, and then they also manage a statewide bed board. So every state-funded crisis bed is centrally managed through the call center Georgia Crisis and Access Line. And so they know, so as a, as a crisis bed provider, I have to be constantly communicating the status of my beds. Are they vacant or is it full? So the next one is someone to respond to. So this is again, a separate uh, mobile team, separate from a community provider like Viewpoint Health. There's a statewide mobile crisis team that provides uh, intervention, both via telehealth or in person. They will come out and respond. They're available 24 seven and they provide an assessment and referral into services. So sometimes it's only telephone and then they tell the person to come in. If it's on a you know, Thursday night, then they say come in to Viewpoint Health at eight o'clock in the morning. So then if it's, if it's something that can wait until then, but they do have uh, licensed clinicians that are providing that intervention and making that determination. And so the part three is somewhere to go. And this is where Viewpoint Health comes in, uh, but across the state, so Viewpoint is one of 23 state-funded community service boards or local mental health providers. And so every county in Georgia is covered by one. We have 159 counties in Georgia, <laughs> but uh, we cover three counties, Gwinnett, Rockdale, and Newton. Uh, and so some community service boards have upwards of 13 counties that they cover. Uh, so, but every county has access to a community service board. And several of these community service boards have some type of crisis intervention service. And the, the system calls, or, or they've called this Behavioral Health Crisis Centers, BHCCs. And in order to be a BHCC in Georgia, there's three components. There's a crisis service center, which is a walk-in access uh, where you get screened, you have an assessment and a referral. And there's the second part, which is a temporary observation unit. This is where, if you kind of think about it like a little mini ER that is just for behavioral health, you might not actually have a bed. It might be like a medical recliner that you can use. Uh, you're not there. You're really not meant to be there for more than 23, 24 hours. But we do have access to a nurse, to a therapist, to you know, assessment. You might even be able to see a psychiatrist, or at least through telehealth, uh, to even get started on medication. You might not ever get admitted after that. You might get referred out. But that's just another component. And then finally, the crisis stabilization unit, which is an inpatient type uh, unit. And it's the average stay is usually about three to seven days. So that's the statewide system that really kind of describes the network and the way the crisis services are set up in Georgia. So at Viewpoint, we are, as I said, just one of the 23 community-based mental health centers that cover Georgia. We are the state safety net. 
we were actually created by law in 1994. So we've been um, at, we've actually were carved out of public health. So we've got some employees that have been with us for, for more than 40 years, but we were established in this form in 1994 by state law to be an instrumentality of the state. So that means that when the state needs to solve a problem, they can contract directly with us and they can tell us what to do. They use us um, as a safety net. We do serve Medicaid and Medicare. We serve um, ages five and up, youth and adults, and we um, primarily serve the uninsured population. So uh, that is, and, and as I said, we are, Gwinnett, Rockdale, Newton counties are right, just kind of northeast of Atlanta. So we have uh, Gwinnett County, which is almost a million people just in Gwinnett County alone, plus Rockdale and Newton uh, counties that are adjacent to us. So these are our service lines. So of course, prevention and early intervention is the, the foundation of our services. That's where we're gonna serve the most people, but it's a much lighter touch. And then our outpatient services is where you've got, we, we have five clinics uh, throughout our three counties and we provide individual, family, group, uh, psychiatry, nursing, and crisis services. So this is like our front door. Now we are only open for traditional business hours, so eight to five. So after five o'clock, there's really not that 24 seven access that we would like to have. Um, but we do, but our outpatient centers during eight to five do operate as that crisis walk-in center. And I'll go into more detail about that. But we have a comprehensive service array. Our specialty services include uh, day programs for uh, individuals with mental health issues, as well as substance use issues and adults with developmental disabilities. These day programs operate Monday through Friday and individuals can come every day to those programs. Uh, we also have intensive services, which are services that are mostly community-based, like assertive community treatment and intensive case management and um, early treatment for psychosis for the young population. Uh, these intensive services are really more like a clinic without walls where our licensed clinicians and team members uh, provide those services in home and out in the community. And then finally, our acute services are crisis units. And these are our um, inpatient beds where we have uh, three crisis stabilization units. One that serves adults and it's 23 beds, one that serves adolescents and that's 16 beds. And then we've just opened a crisis unit that serves children with autism and that's a 10 bed unit. And I'll go into more detail on those as well. So the missing link for Viewpoint Health is that 24 seven access to care. So we actually don't qualify by definition of the state as a behavioral health crisis center because we don't have that one component of our crisis service center. So since we've been around for 28 years, we had, this has been kind of a work in progress. So we had established our adult crisis stabilization unit prior to the state coming up with this full continuum as well as the definition of behavioral health crisis center. So we have added a temporary observation unit to our existing crisis stabilization unit, 
but we don't have the space to accommodate a 24 seven crisis service center. Um, but that's in the works. We've got some proposals out there and that's something that we're trying to add. Uh, so that's why I said that the outpatient centers from eight to five are the ones that serve as that crisis service center uh, drop off at this point. So our outpatient clinics, we did convert all of our outpatient clinics to same day access in 2012. That was a critical component to being able to provide crisis care. Even if we weren't able to be available 24 seven, we had to be available that same day. So we don't schedule any intakes. If somebody needs our care, whether it's crisis or routine, they walk in to our crisis or to our outpatient clinic and we assess them and either enroll them into care or we provide the crisis intervention. So by having, by not scheduling intakes, we have a, a 0% no-show rate. Uh, and prior to that, I think Anura said in my bio, when I first started with Viewpoint, I was an intake clinician and I had about a 50% no-show rate. So we double booked constantly, right? C to try to make up for that. And so sometimes you would have everybody show, sometimes you would have nobody show. Uh, it was really a struggle. But by eliminating that scheduling of appointments, we were able to manage the flow much better. And then we, um, prior to the pandemic, we provided very little telehealth, very, very little telehealth. Now we provide a lot of it. And hopefully we will be able to continue that on even um, post pandemic, uh, because we really have found that it's beneficial to the operations, as, but most importantly, it's beneficial to the individual served. And our outpatient clinics, the, the walk-in component of intake and crisis is all provided by licensed clinicians. So I did mention intensive outpatient services. This is that clinic without walls. This is where we partner with essential community partners uh, to provide those services so that you, you don't, we're not waiting for you to come to us. Uh, so the, our partnerships include police, sheriff, technical colleges, um, the one homeless shelter that we have in Gwinnett and other social service agencies, as well as the schools. So we have clinicians, Viewpoint Health employed clinicians embedded in all of these other departments. So you can see there is the Gwinnett County Police and that a uh, guy there is named Pej Madave. He is our licensed clinical social worker that leads up the team of co-responders uh, throughout our counties. And the work that they've been doing there has been absolutely amazing. It's actually, we're really late to the game. I know that King County's had co-responders for quite a while. We just started this in the last year. Um, so, but this has been um, a great partnership with funding that comes from the county and the local police precincts, as well as um, some fee-for-service billing that we can generate through the state. And uh, the, the way that we're able to divert has just been absolutely phenomenal. Gwinnett County, um, Anura mentioned the, uh, Nicola Hendrickson, who's our uh, county chairwoman, uh, they started off with a contract for just like a few hours with an hourly rate, like just they didn't know how much clinician time that they were gonna need. And within two weeks, they asked for six clinicians. So like right away, they knew that this was gonna really work well. Uh, so 
uh, that has been uh, a great partnership and really diverts from the emergency departments, from the jail, and because our clinicians can get them enrolled into services, and then they don't even have to come into the outpatient clinic the next day. They're already enrolled in the care. They've got their next appointment with their psychiatrist. They're they're in with the sort of community treatment team, whatever um, form of treatment best suits the, for that individual. So I wanted to just provide a little bit of data as far as the volume of assessments. So you can see the blue bar is individuals that are coming in clinic. Um, and then in, when I say in clinic, that includes telehealth. Out of clinic is just those intensive outpatient where we're providing that intervention within the co-responder or at the schools or another department outside of Viewpoint Health. Uh, so most of our intake assessments are people coming to us and we're providing that intake. A lot of our crisis, you can see, um, is provided out in the community um, with our local partners. And we have that ebb and flow this summer. I guess, you know, sunshine comes out and people don't have as many crises or need for us, but it, that's just consistent with, with our dip. So once you complete the crisis assessment, then what? So you've got to walk in, we've got the ability to, to provide that assessment, then where does the client go? What do we do? So that's where our crisis stabilizations come in. So this is our little tiny crisis stabilization unit where we don't have room to add a walk-in component, uh, but we do have uh, 23 beds there. I did see that somebody had a question about 16 beds. So it's my understanding that Medicaid limits Medicaid payments for crisis stabilization units to 16 beds or less. So in, at least in Georgia, that's where we're limited. If you've got more than 16 beds, you can't bill Medicaid for that service. So in Georgia, since we have not expanded Medicaid, the majority of the adult population is uninsured that we serve. If they don't have private insurance, then um, we only serve the, the uninsured. So we do have 23 beds because that wasn't, um, we, at one point we had 16 beds, but it was less than 2% of the population that ended up having Medicaid. So we decided let's go ahead and expand the number of beds that we have and not bill Medicaid. Um, but right now, because of COVID and trying to mitigate the spread of COVID, because we have three people to a room in, in our crisis unit. So we've had to temporarily reduce um, our number of beds just, just to mitigate the spread of COVID. And then we also have a six bed temporary observation unit that is connected in this same building. And we are adding a detox unit. So this is gonna be offsite. It's not gonna be in that same building because in that building right now, we do provide, uh, we do provide crisis stabilization treatment for substance use and mental health issues. So by, by creating a separate detox unit, and we were able to do this with um, a proposal that we wrote to the state for some of their ARPA money. Uh, so we are, uh, ask, we've asked for uh, funds to open a detox unit. So that will increase our capacity at our crisis unit if we can divert some of the admissions that are just detox only over to this other unit. Um, but that, that was an important component was being able to manage both substance use and mental health 
in a way that uh, best fits for the communities that you serve. So we definitely had a need here. And you'll see here that those are all private rooms that we're building out there. Our adolescent crisis unit is 16 beds. In Georgia, kids have Medicaid. So Medicaid, uh, if, if, if there's a child that's uninsured, we can get them on Medicaid. So this unit is limited to 16 beds. Um, it is private rooms, which is great because during COVID that worked out really well that we were able to spread out and, and keep uh, the spread down. Um, but you can just see a few pictures here. We do have a little garden out front. Um, the kids do a lot of artwork uh, and we, we share it out there. And this, this unit does serve the whole state. And I think there was a question in the chat about um, out of state. Yes, we do get out of state referrals as well. Um, those are managed. Uh, we do have to get approval from that from the state because it's state funds that are paying for our services. So um, we just have to go through an, another layer of, of approval for that. And then this is, we call it the ranch because it's a beautiful property out in Conyers. We uh, it's seven acres. Uh, we wanted a place for, for these, are, these are younger kids, these are ages 10 to 14 uh, that have autism that will come and stay, the length of stay here is up to 30 days. So we really wanted this to feel like a home. So you can see there we've got um, a great sensory room and uh, an awesome team of uh, these, these team, um, a lot of them are registered behavioral techs that are under the supervision of board certified behavior analyst. Uh, so that's the work that we do there. And it serves statewide. It's the only one in the state. So another really important component of our service array is supportive housing. Because so many of the individuals, the adults that we serve are unhoused. So if you don't have the services yourself, you've got to have partners who are able to provide that housing or else you're going to have people that are in your crisis system for extended periods of time with no place to go. Uh, so we are fortunate to have a robust uh, housing array within our own services. And um, you can see this listed out here. This really is a blended funding. We, we have funding from uh, the Department of Community Affairs, DCA. Uh, they get uh, funding through federal uh, agencies like HUD, and uh, we're able to then get individuals access to uh, those housing vouchers and other ways to, to get them permanently housed. So I mentioned partners just on the last slide regarding housing. So it's so important. If you don't provide the service yourself, get the partners at the table. So housing partners, law enforcement, medical care, ongoing services. So if you're not going to be the one providing a sort of community treatment or intensive case management, having those partners at the table that you can have that warm handoff into those services, peer support services, community-based inpatient hospitals. So if you're not going to provide the crisis beds yourself, having that place to go, as well as detox and other resources. So much of the work that we do is just connecting the individuals to the appropriate resources that are available out in the community. Might not even be mental health treatment. It might be the food pantry and um, voc rehab and other sort of resources that are, that needed, that are needed. 
So as I said, we're a work in progress, but I also want to just say like, if I had, if I had a do-over, <laughs> this is what I would do in that in the adult unit, I would build private rooms. It's um, if you've got it, if you're building it from scratch right now, build private rooms. Don't try to put three people in a room. It uh, it's not just for COVID. It solves a whole bunch of other problems as well, uh, but build private rooms. I would love to co-locate with an emergency department because as Anora said, we are not an emergency room. This is not, if you are having a medical crisis, we're not equipped to be able to do that. But not everybody that needs us needs to go through an emergency room. That is incredibly expensive and a real drain on resources. So if we could just have some place nearby where we could kind of like filter so that if somebody shows up to the emergency department, and they don't need that emergency department, instead of getting all of that started, they could come to us. Um, I don't know if in Washington, you have the big blue H signs on the highway, but you know, whenever you're getting close to a hospital, you see the big blue H. Well, anytime somebody is in a crisis, if they don't know what's going on, they're gonna go wherever the big blue H is. So if I could be somewhere near that, I would love it uh, because then we could be right there available and, and um, have a have a pure living room model nearby where we can assess uh, and so much can be de-escalated and rerouted without having to actually go to a temporary observation unit or go into a crisis bed. And as I said before, I would love to have that 24-7 uh, crisis service center. And, and I'm hoping that we can get that soon. All right, any questions? I think I'm gonna get questions from Tiffany, but you might, I don't hear you. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jennifer. Um, while you still may be ever evolving, the work you all are doing in Georgia is still very, very impressive. So thank you so much for your insight into Viewpoint Health Crisis. As you mentioned, I do have a question that some of our attendees, it might be on some of the minds of our attendees um, before we wrap up to go to the larger Q&A. So the question I'd like to ask you is, as they look to invest in a similar model of care, what should they plan for in terms of capital infrastructure investment? Ooh, that is a tough one. Um, so I, the, the ranch that you saw that we built out, um, we did that, we opened it January of 2021. So um, in that, the build out for that 10 bed, unit was right at $2 million. That was the construction and the build out. Um, of course, you know, that's a commercial kitchen. You've got to think about all of the equipment uh, that you need to for something like that for a unit. Um, if it's just a crisis drop off center that you're not going to need quite as much, but um, you do need to think about um, having a shower you need to have you need to have a place to shower you need to have a way to feed people coming in um so so that the the capital uh expenditure up front is is pretty hefty Thank and then on, ongoing operations did you want me to so in georgia the behavioral health crisis center uh typical budget 
for ongoing operations. This is not capital build out. This is after it's built. How do you operate a BHCC? It does vary from county to county or, or department or program to program, but it's somewhere around $7 million annually to operate all three. But the it's primarily for adults and the number of beds for crisis beds is 30. So that's more than what I operate. I have 23, but the standard um, behavioral health crisis service center through Georgia is a the crisis service center walk-in plus about a six bed temporary observation unit and then a 30 bed crisis unit. Thank you. All right, I know that we're really close on time. So I'm gonna go ahead and put this back to Anora so that we can get to the round table Q&A. Great, thank you so much. Jennifer, thank you so much. And um, Tiffany, thank you so much as well. I, um, I know that all of our speakers, um, like Tanisha said, could speak about this for hours, days. They live, breathe, and eat this. So we wanna thank you for keeping it um, as condensed as possible, but giving us all of the necessary information. So we're gonna go ahead and get started with the Q&A. Um, I see that there have been several submitted. The bottom of your taskbar, there is a Q&A button if you'd like to submit there, um, but we are gonna open it also to the live questions and answers. But I am gonna start with the Q&A that's in the chat. Um, so, um, one of the questions, and I think uh, I appreciate the Mercy team answering this, but just for the benefit of everyone else, um, one of the questions is about the, um, the the 16 bed limit. And so I know it's different in different states with the Medicaid it's expanded versus not, but um, for uh, Mercy Care, uh, could you speak to, uh, Jennifer already addressed it, but could you speak to the federal guidelines behind the, the sort of the bed count and um, what would happen if you went over? Hi, this is Shelley. Yeah, I can. Oh, go ahead, Tanisha. Do you want to take it? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, so I can speak to that. Um, as an agency that's funded through Medicaid, um, there are certain uh, regulations that we have to follow. Um, and one of those is that if somebody is admitted to a place that's called an, an Institute uh, for Mental Disease, an IMD, um, that if they spend, um, you know, more than more than a couple of weeks in one of those facilities over a period of a month, then Medicaid will no longer pay for that stay. Um, and, and not only will they no longer pay for that stay, but they will no longer pay for that person's, you know, benefits for that calendar month. So what happens to health plans is if you have somebody that's admitted to an IMB, for an extended period of time, then that health plan does not get paid any funding for that person during that month. And so the cost, the health plan has to cover, the person still needs to be covered, but Medicaid is not gonna help with that cost. And so it's important for health plans, for Medicaid health plans to be able to contract with uh, you know, hospitals that are less than 16 beds or that are a big, uh, you know, a, a larger in institution that's not considered an IMD because they also offer medical care and they have medical hospital beds. They're not just for mental health. And so the way that we work with our crisis facilities, as, as I had said in the chat, is they have to have separate licensed units. So even though it's all on the same campus and they might have three 16 bed units, they're licensed separately, they're operated separately, they act independently in regards to the regulation. So they're there in the same physical space, but they're licensed as individual units. 
So that's the, the reason for the 16 beds is that the person is going to lose their coverage and their Medicaid plan is going to be on the hook for their cost for that month if they have an extended stay in an IMD. Okay, thank you for that. So it, you know, as I mentioned in the very beginning, this it is this is complicated work. Um, and if you're uh, for the attendees, you know, if you're feeling intimidated, like this is insurmountable, or wow, there's a lot of different nuances. Um, we have, you know, living proof that this is indeed possible. So I hope that you, you know, come away with this feeling inspired um, that this is indeed possible. Uh, but it is a, a constant work in progress. That is just the nature of crisis work. Um, and so we have another question um, that's that has come in, and this is. Um, Jennifer, you and I actually talked about this, um, you know, earlier, and this is about kids. Um, and so what happens when kids come, you know, come who are um, foster youth, or if you want to share the story about the youth that you had that was um, basically abandoned, uh, you know, what, what happens to an individual and how complicated does that make things? It, it's very complicated. Uh, unfortunately, being a safety net and being the um, our crisis unit for adolescents is located uh, very central right in the heart of Atlanta and we serve the entire state. And because we're a safety net, we serve uh, individuals that are really denied everywhere else. So by the time they get to us, we are really the last place uh, and we don't say no. So we serve everybody. And um, there has been, unfortunately, multiple times where parents will refuse to come and pick the child up uh, whenever their crisis is stabilized and it's time to go home. Um, so we've then what happens in, in Georgia with that process is we get uh, the Department of Family and Children's Services involved. And uh, sometimes a foster care placement is not readily available or appropriate. Um, and so we do have another higher level of care in Georgia called uh, PRTF or Psychiatric Rehabilitation Treatment Facility. And um, those are more longer term placements, uh, residential placements for youth. And so sometimes we get those individuals in there, but it has not, um, we've had youth living at our crisis unit for more than two months. Uh, waiting, awaiting that process uh, from time to time. So um, those are the times when we spend holidays together and we get Christmas presents for the kiddos and we try to make it as um, as a best, you know, try to make it as best of a situation for them as possible. We get to know them really well while they're um, hung up in that in that system. And as the community safety net, that is the last stop. Um, you know, that is where people where people go, and so. They are yours. Um, they're you're under your responsibility. And um, just for the audience, there are guardianship issues. There are um, there are identity issues, right? There are sort of unlawful presence issues. Um, it, it can be complicated. And so that relationship with the court that you mentioned, um, to have that close relationship with the court, with law enforcement, um, and with the uh, the uh, foster system, and also the adult protective services system, probably all comes crashing into one big spider web on many of these cases. And I'd imagine it's the same for our other, um, our other speakers here today. So it is complicated work. Um, okay, great, so thank you for that, Jennifer. So we have another question. I think this is directed back towards, um, towards uh, our Mercy team. So, um, and also Sunny from Tampa, uh, if you have something to say about this, please absolutely, especially the um, serving as a county's 211. Um, so what, what is the process like for call diversion? So what is the process like for the intake when the calls come in and how do we know, um, is there a screening process or a safety screening process on which calls go with our mobile folks 
and which calls need to go with mobile folks plus police or which calls really need to be just for police and then maybe we can join, mental health professionals can join later. Can you talk a little bit about that flow? Uh, Mercy, if you'd like to start, Mercy. Yeah, um, so I think first, when, when we first talked with um, Phoenix call takers, we first had to get the buy-in from the supervisors because there's no way that you're gonna implement something new without having supervisors say, yes, we embrace this. So we also conducted a survey um, to find out what their understanding of behavioral health, CIT resources, um, so that we could develop a training that, that helped everybody to have the same working knowledge of information. And then there was a, a, a staff person from our crisis line who co-located with the communications folks to help build their confidence around, this is a good call, this is how we can help, um, so, some of that hands-on stuff. And then the department revised their policy to say, we support call takers in transferring these calls. So they, if, if an officer is not needed, if there isn't a safety concern, and they can ask the person, would you like to talk to somebody at the crisis line? They can transfer that call over. Um, the call taker may also recognize, hey, I'm going to send police because this is really what needs to happen, but it also sounds behavioral health. So let's get that mobile team going at the same time so that we can um, support the person. Additionally, um, in terms of our call center, it, you know, bringing in law enforcement, even if that call gets transferred from 911 over to the crisis line, and now the crisis line specialist hears, um, you know, shouting, screaming, you know, things are breaking, stuff doesn't sound safe. They're going to send that mobile team, but they're also going to say, hey, we, we would like to have law enforcement there, make sure that it's safe, secure. And as soon as that happens, then the mobile team can take over from law enforcement. So I think that safety concern is always the, the biggest piece. We want the person who's in crisis to be safe. We want our mobile team staff to be safe. We certainly want um, you know, to, to take over from law enforcement quickly when and where possible. So uh, coming from that, that mindset and there's that ongoing comfortability for call takers as they do this. The more that they do this, the more that they realize, yes, this is a good call. This is an appropriate diversion. You're always going to have some of those individuals who are, you know, perhaps experiencing symptoms of psychosis or paranoia. They truly believe somebody's breaking into their home. They truly believe somebody's in the attic. That may always kind of sound like an officer needs to go, but the more that the call takers pick up on, it also sounds like we could send a mobile team. We know that this caller has called before and um, we know that this tends to be behavioral health. So um, trial and error, lots of communication, um, and then just keep working at it. Absolutely, thank you so much, Tanisha. Um, Sonny, I have a question that came in for you, um, and this is regarding the, um, the uh, sexual assault services, did you have to change legislation? Like, did you actually have to um, go in front of Congress and change legislation in order for it to get out of the traditional place, which is currently right now in the ER here, um, to bring it, bring those services 
to your center there? Like, what did that even take? That's a great question. Yes, um, there was a statewide movement to do that. Um, what had to happen was um, uh, our Florida Council Against Sexual Violence, which is our statewide council, um, and, and providers around the state um, did go to the legislat legislature, did um, write new language to allow for certification. So Florida Council Against Sexual Violence then was given the authority to certify rape crisis centers to provide forensic exams. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, they also eventually had a bill passed that allowed us to get paid through trust fund dollars, but that, that uh, amount of payment was uh, stagnant for about 20 years. And just two years ago, we were able to um, double that payment so that now we can actually uh, keep the lights on and keep providing the service without, without having to do um, even more fundraising. So it's, it really, we, we are very connected to folks who um, lobby, we say advocate on our behalf um, in Tallahassee. And that's a, a critical, critical part of how we, we get funding and how we're able to, to get policy passed. Our board also uh, just is very, has a very strong public policy committee. And I, I do want to say that to anybody who's trying to do anything in this field, a strong board with strong community connections in, and community and connections to um, policymakers is good. Absolutely. Thank you. And um, uh, congratulations on opening up your second site there in the South County. Can you talk a little bit about what the needs assessment um, that your team conducted in order to determine that that was in fact a need? And how did you, you know, what were some of the data demographics, the outcomes that you were able to, um, to, to look into to be able to justify that big spend and the new physical plant um, for, your, for your team? So there are a couple of things. That's a great question too. And I'll try to be really brief on this. We, we first started um, by talking with law enforcement. You know, law enforcement is really our connection, uh, the first connection to a lot of victims of sexual assault. And we went specifically to the Sheriff's Department um, folks that were uh, stationed in that area. It's a predominantly uh, Spanish-speaking language, Spanish-speaking area, and, and heard from them uh, directly. And then we, we started meeting with community providers, uh, <clears throat> faith-based groups and Hispanic Latin councils, uh, different uh, Latin, uh, Hispanic uh, groups down in that area about this issue. And so we were able to, to understand that, that the crime index down in that part of the county is as high or higher as other crime indexes in other parts of the county. Yet we were seeing only about 10% of our clients were coming from that part of the county. So we were able to say, A, law enforcement wants this for their convenience. It's a, it, it gives them, if, when they bring someone from, from that area of the county, they, have, they are basically giving up an entire shift. Uh, so that's number one. The sheriff got behind it, wrote a letter, and then we pulled the demographics from the folks down there who, who actually live there and serve the community, and we're able to take that to the county commission. Excellent. So it sounds like the theme between all of the presenters today has been stakeholder, stakeholder, stakeholder engagement very early on, as early as possible. I just want to make one more little comment. Um, ben, our friends down in Bend, Oregon, just opened up their crisis center like a week ago. Um, it's a 2022 crisis center. Um, so they're obviously very, very new and can't publish outcomes yet. But um, just to let you know, they had been started their they started their stakeholder engagement conversations sometime around 2010 or 2012. Um, and so then they just kept the message going. And if you remember in the very beginning um, during my talk, you know, it was anywhere, anyone, um, anytime. That is the theme that they kept 
um, as, as you know, posted everywhere, um, written everywhere, and they just sort of kept their eyes on that prize and, and worked their way that way. But 2010, 2012 to 2022, they just broke ground. They, you know, just opened up. Um, you know, this is this work is uh, is for the long haul. So um, we are actually getting close to time. Um, I know that there uh, were some issues in finding the Q and A button. So it's at the bottom there of your toolbar screen. Um, you just go all the way down. Um, but if you also want to ask a question, um, you're welcome to raise your hand. And I see that um, it looks like Beth Goldberg has raised her hand. So um, Beth, we're gonna unmute you so you can ask your question. Please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon or good morning, everyone. I guess I've jumped ahead to the afternoon to join our friends on uh, the East Coast. I just want to make sure that um, a question I posed um, much earlier in the presentation, and I know other participants had a similar question, um, gets answered. And that is um, uh, participants are, are noticing that we've had a number of people on the call from Aetna. Um, and we're not understanding um, the role that Aetna is, is playing in this. So um, if someone could explain that for the group. Um, originally, I thought I was the only one with a question, but I, I, I did get pinged that, uh, that others have a similar question as well. Yeah, I can take that back. This is Tiffany Rogers with Aetna. Thank you for your question. I do think that this is a good point of reference to clarify our attendance here today. So really, Aetna appreciates the interest in this endeavor. And as you've seen, we've partnered um, on these models across the country. Um, as we continue to serve the Puget Sound um, area, Aetna wants to partner with local governments, the state, and other committed partners to bring meaningful solutions to our communities. Ultimately, we all benefit from a robust connected care delivery system. And we'd love to see a similar model here. And because we've done it effectively in other parts of the country, um, we'd like to partner here, especially for me and in my own backyard. So, so okay, so, so that raises a, a follow-up question that I think participants on this call are going to have. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna project a little bit for a moment. So what we have found um, in our research, um, and we have done, the cities that are participating on this call have actually done quite extensive research. We've done um, um, calls to other clinics around uh, Washington state and have done some, some um, virtual site visits, is that um, the, the, the mechanism for the payment um, is, is coming not through a private insurer, um, but through um, the county behavioral health um, uh, ASO. I'm gonna get the, the, the names wrong, administrative service operator. Um, so how, and, and perhaps that's just a Washington state thing, but um, I'm, I, I, I think there, there are likely going to be there are going to be some questions. We're going on an assumption that we're partnering with the county, and that that that's that's going to be the funding mechanism. Is it does it work differently elsewhere? Is that why 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 Aetna is represented here? That those B S A S O B H A S Os um, it doesn't operate that way in in other parts of the country, or, or how does that work? That's um, a great question, Anora. Do you want to? Yes, Tiffany, if I could jump in on this. Jennifer, would you like to talk about your pair mix um, that you uh, could be surprising to people, the pair mix of your clients there? That could answer Beth's question. 
Sure, I'm happy to do that. So uh, we, because we didn't expand Medicaid, the adult, the majority of the adults that we serve are uninsured. So those funds come from state and federal and local. So it really is blended. So our funding is primarily state funds that are appropriated through our state legislature to the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. And then they contract directly with community service boards, um, as well as SAMHSA federal funds. And then our local counties do also provide subsidies. Uh, and it really takes every bit of all three of those to make this work. And then, I'm sorry, I'll just also say, we also bill uh, fee for service for the services rendered. So it's not like you just get this bucket of money to provide whatever. When somebody comes in in crisis and they're uninsured, we do have to get authorization and bill through an administrative services organization, like you mentioned, and to collect for every single service that we provide. And Jennifer, do people who access your services, do they also have private insurance on the private market? The majority of them do not. Um, now in crisis, if somebody walks in because they came to us because they know that we're the crisis center and they have private insurance, we are not paneled for private insurance, but for crisis, we can still bill the state contracted services for that one time encounter uh, to get paid for us because we're not going to turn that person away just because they've got private insurance and there's no place else for them to go. But then we will connect them to a private hospital for that ongoing care. So, so uh, sorry, I don't mean to be monopolizing this, but I, I think this is a really important um, uh, issue for us here locally to understand. Um, and so what our understanding has been is that the Washington State Clinics are able to, um, to support 100% of their operating costs through Medicaid dollars, which are then flowing through the BHASO. Um, it, it sounds like that is maybe that's a difference from the models elsewhere where um, your costs are not being funded that way. And, and that's, that's just that's an important distinction for us to have is we're, is we're kind of understanding how we piece this, this together. Um, because the, the, the clinics that we have found locally are, they do appear to all be funded through, through the Medicaid reimbursement. Now, the building and the construction, and that, that's, that's a whole different ball of wax, but from a day-to-day -day operating perspective, there is, a, there is a, a symbiotic and direct uh, relationship and dependence between um, the clinic provider and um, the, the BHASO uh, because of because of that Medicaid connection. And, um, and I just, like I said, I think it's an, just an important distinction for us locally to be aware of. Absolutely. We have time for just one more comment. Amber, would you like to say anything? Um, and then we do need to close. Yeah, I think really quickly on the, on the funding components, it is funded through the Medicaid system for most of the access points. And that's where the Mercy Care, I think, program really does align well. But when we think about the funding models, it does take private investments. It takes local philanthropy. And a lot of these groups are using that, you know, the 1% local sales tax option in Washington for, for some of these services. 
but it, it is a community-based program. And you know, even when we think of the state legislature, it takes all of us advocating together to get those Medicaid rates up because Medicaid doesn't reimburse for all the, the cost of care services. So making sure that we do have those wide programs and that's what Aetna is committed to. You know, we work with the state legislature on those advocacy efforts, increasing Medicaid rates, taking down barriers. So that holistic community approach is something that we're invested in because as Tiffany said, a healthy community supports us all. So that's where we're trying to help. Um, and Beth, I really appreciate your question because we do have unique barriers in Washington for our population. And we do need to address that from a, from a holistic and, and broad, broad perspective. Thank you for that, Amber. So um, I wanna be respectful of everyone's time um, and uh, we are at time. So uh, I want to thank all of my colleagues across the nation who joined us today to be able to help move this conversation forward for us here in Western Washington, or at least get it started. Um, we do hope that you um, are able to take away that, you know, yes, it's complicated, but it's absolutely possible. This is a possibility. Uh, much work and research needs to be done that goes into it, but we hope that this is a foundational level um, exercise to get us um, energized and keep the conversations going. And we, we do appreciate all the wonderful feedback that we've received in the Q&A, especially over email as well. So thank you for that. Um, and so um, remember that this is recorded and it's going to be maintained by the city of Kirkland. So we thank the city of Kirkland for doing that. Um, and so all the slides are embedded within this recording. So you will have all the slides. Um, you have the booklet from this morning. If you'd like other copies, please uh, shoot me an email and let me know. My email is at the beginning there on the slides as well as all of our presenters' emails as well. And with that, I'm gonna um, toss it to Tiffany to take us home and I uh, appreciate everyone's time this morning afternoon. Thank you, Anora. So again, just to reiterate, we really hope that you all learned a lot from today's symposium and that you walk away with understanding and several reasons why supporting, developing, deploying similar models really benefit your local communities. Again, I'd like to thank uh, my Aetna team members, Beyond Ford, our health crisis presenter, City of Kirkland, and Mayor Sweet for not only supporting today's webinar, but having the discussion around how to best address the needs for your respective communities. This is a very important topic and one that needs to be on the forefront for those who need that additional support from our communities. So with that, I'll just close us out. Thank you all for your time today and have a great rest of the week.